You are listening to Genuine Chit Chat. This show is for real. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, I'm speaking with Sean Hamilton, who's the writer of the book, When Your Partner Says Hashtag Me Too, Your Role and Responsibilities in Their Recovery Process. So this is a trigger warning for anyone. This conversation tackles sexual violence, and there is a lot of terminology that is used which is associated with that. It's a very intense conversation, it's a very important conversation, but I do not recommend anyone listening to this of a young age or anyone who is sensitive to such matters of sexual violence and those sorts of things, because one of the first things that Sean explains is the sexual violence that his wife went through, and one of the reasons he decided to write this book, and it kind of goes from there. So it's a very intense listen, but it is an incredibly important one as well, so I'm very happy to be able to release this so more people can learn from this and hear about these sorts of things, because it's an element that I've not really heard many other people speak about, not specifically specifically the sexual violence element, but what to do when you are the partner of someone who has gone through those kind of things and what one can actually do to assist in those ways and also to not make things worse. So uh, that's going to be it from me here at the start. Just make sure you check out these show notes where there's links to Sean's website, his Instagram, as well as his wife Kristen's TED talk about rapid resolution therapy. But I will be back at the end to give more information on what's to come, but always check out the show notes. And there is a video version of this conversation as well. So you can go to youtube.com slash genuine chit chat to check that out. But enough from me, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in as always. And I give you Sean Hamilton. Welcome to Genuine Chit Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. And I'm your host, Mike Burton. I am here today with a gentleman who has worn many hats, figuratively and literally, because if you're watching the video version, you can see he's actually wearing a hat right now. Um, But he has done many different things in his uh, life in a variety of different ways. And his passion is really something that I noticed comes through in other conversations I've listened to. And you see his body of works. And it is just, there's a lot of self-determination in a lot of what he's done. So I'm pleased to show to you uh, Sean Hamilton. Good sir, please tell people... uh, who you are in general. It's quite an existential question, but delve on in. Let us know why you're here, what kind of things you want to talk about. Oh, well, I I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and speak uh, to your audience and get to know you a little bit better. Um, Yeah. So I, again, like you said, I've kind of worn many hats uh, in my life. And one in particular is being a partner to a survivor of sexual violence, which is kind of like the main body of work that I kind of have found myself pursuing um, currently. And it wasn't something that I was like, you know, as a kid, I was growing up just passionate about and was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to, you know, grow up and write a book about this and talk about a subject that combines two areas in which people are so afraid to talk about in our culture, which is sex and trauma. And we're going to combine those into the phrase sexual trauma. And I'm going to go out there and be a, you know, a, a straight white male in a most divisive era of human history of and and have these difficult conversations but it it kind of fell in my lap to be honest it was it was one of those things that it was just a calling that came across that it was this kind of uh merging of all of these different life experiences that happened uh that I just couldn't ignore any longer and you know just different moments that kind of pieced together from my life's experience from the first time that you know, when I was 15 years old, kind of getting over a trauma of my own, meeting my first girlfriend in high school, uh, falling in love for the first time, kind of having that coming of age story in that, so to speak, but 
also having this dark cloud of what she had gone through as a young girl and the child abuse that she suffered and the intimate partner violence and the multiple times that she had been raped, uh, you know, kind of before our relationship, having all of that bubble up to the surface in the middle of this kind of first experience of love and this first relationship, um, it it really left me feeling like very uh, confused, angry, an incredible sense of emotion because a lot of complexity of that relationship. A lot of the reasons that I believe we kind of drifted apart emotionally and physically until the relationship kind of deteriorated was a lot due to the fact that there was this recovery process that was kind of happening, you know, a little bit below the surface, but also like in our relationship and, you know, uh, and it was just something that I was left with. And I ended up, you know, kind of writing a song about that, trying to get over some of that, that feeling. I turned to music to try to process the traumas that have kind of happened in my life. And that was one of the early, early ones and kind of flash forward. And I'm, you know, thousands of miles away from my hometown and I get out of the Navy. I meet this woman where we've been friends for years. She's really awesome in my life. She's a great friend. And we decide, Hey, we're going to try and, you know, stop the online dating kind of horror show that exists out there. And we realized we had a lot of the same values and a lot of the, you know, we were really interested in each other. We sat down one night and decided, Hey, let's make this a, a thing. Let's, you know, let's give this a shot. And two weeks out after we decided that she got sexually assaulted by a friend of hers, uh, quote, a friend um, who turned out that he had sexually assaulted multiple women in the friend group. And she decided she wanted to be the last one. And so at the very beginning of our relationship, there was, again, this emotional distance. And I was kind of left with these feelings of, uh-oh, like, here I go again. You know, like, this is something that was really traumatizing when I was a kid. And there was a lot of unresolved feelings that were then now coming back up in me. Uh, a lot of fear, a lot of, you know, kind of animosity, not only around the issue and around this guy who's like harmed this person that I care about, but also this fear of losing this relationship, this fear of almost a, a, an abandonment kind of thing uh, that, you know, that I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get pushed away out of this relationship because of just the emotional trauma and the physical trauma that's happened here. So there was a lot going on there. We get through the recovery process. I'm with her kind of shoulder to shoulder in the trenches of this recovery process. And, um, you know, we go to the court system, we, we file criminal charges, we file civil charges and we're trying to get a restraining order a sexual assault restraining order against this guy trying to bring to light all of these other past crimes that he had committed against all of these other women and we're going through this process because that's what society says that a survivor of sexual violence is supposed to do in order for the just general public and the court system to believe and to validate the experience that they've had um and as a guy that's, you know, just shoulder to shoulder, seeing this, getting to see the re-traumatization that happens to a survivor as they go through this legal process, this kind of cold-hearted place that exists that we're supposed to go get justice from and to be let down on so many occasions, uh, you know, to have the lawyers just plead out him having to have a sexual assault restraining order on him to be more of a domestic violence restraining order. So he doesn't have to register as a sex offender or, you know, the criminal court, the King County prosecutor's office in Seattle, just dropping the case against him 
when six and seven other women have come forward to file these charges and, you know, the rape kit getting lost in the system, uh, you know, like all of these different things that happened in the, you know, my wife's recovery process, us going through all of these battles. Like it just left me with so much raw experience, but from a perspective that I feel like has kind of been uh, all but ignored in this conversation when this thing kind of came out of, you know, the 2016, 2017 kind of Me Too movement started to have this upswell uh, and this worldwide movement of, you know, all these survivors coming forward to share their stories about what happened to them because of really just like years and years and generation after generation of trauma and not being believed in this kind of just power dynamic of silencing voices around this trauma and just the sense of, you know, uh, lack of safety, really, uh, you know, not feeling safe in their own neighborhoods. They can't, you know, like all these just different stories coming out. Uh, it just gave me a different perspective. It gave me something to reflect back on and go, you know, this has happened so many times in my life. And there's another story that kind of a little piece of my history that's kind of in between this that I'll get into in a second. But it really helped me process what I was feeling to put it down onto paper and to really understand that we as partners have this important role. And what I was starting to realize was that some of the ways that I showed up in that first relationship were starting to kind of mirror themselves in how I was showing up in my current relationship. Some of them were good. Some of them were bad. And some of them I should never have done. And when we got through the recovery process, my wife and I sat down and I was like, I was curious when we, and I say get through, but it's more so get to a place where she feels healed. Um, cause that's going to be different for everybody and every survivor is going to have a different journey with that. But, uh, I don't know that there's ever a day where that just goes away. I mean, cause most survivors, it's kind of like, once you have survived sexual violence, there's the, you, you can't go back to before you were a survivor. Right. So there's always that, that kind of life sentence in a, so to speak, but you get to a place where you've reconciled, you, you feel recovered, you feel a sense of healing around that. You can bring intimacy and sexuality back into your life. And it's not this incredibly traumatic experience. It's not, you know, marred with lots of PTSD response, but you get to a place where it's kind of a, a healed place in your life. So once we got to that place, it gave me an opportunity to ask my wife a lot of questions about how I showed up, what my role was. How does she think that because the way I showed up affected her recovery process in the good, bad, and the ugly? And really sat with a lot of really difficult questions and a lot of difficult realizations. And from that, I just kind of had a calling that was like, I want to put together a tool for people that are in this situation. Because I feel like this has happened so many times in my life that there has to be other people out there that are in this situation. There has to be other guys like me or women like me that are in my position of being a partner to somebody who has survived sexual violence in which it's like shown up and creates an incredible amount of trauma in the relationship, not only just from the individual's perspective of who's recovering from it, but that ripple effect is a real thing in the relationship. And it's a real thing that we have to confront we have to show up in ways and it creates forks in the road in which we can either help this person stay on this path of recovery, or we can handle situations in which can really cause further harm. And so I really 
just had this calling one day that was like, I just want to create a tool that's kind of more of a, a bridge of communication um, that really connects survivors and the partners, like the intimate partners, but also the people that are just in the kind of environment. So like parents and friends and coworkers and, you know, people that want to understand this issue and understand the recovery process, like hear it from rather than like the survivor themselves, because their story is absolutely important and it's valid. But the Me Too movement created this political ideology where we kind of got split down these lines around this issue. And what I wanted to do is just like, try my best to remove that and come forward with a raw, authentic, vulnerable conversation that says, listen, this is what it's like to be right next to somebody who is recovering from this particular issue and this trauma. And I just want to give you the raw information about what it's like. And I want to zoom in to the most, like the worst case scenario that I've defined it as is like, what is the most challenging moment that we as partners can experience? Zoom into that moment, really highlight it, help people develop a strategy around, you know, kind of dealing with that. And then talk about the issue from a just a, a, a more broad perspective so that people get a little bit more of the conversation so we can build a bridge of communication and try to help people out of suffering as much as possible. And so that's that's really where this this kind of calling came from was just the experience of it, as well as kind of seeing the conversation get steered away into this world of like he said, she said political ideology, political camps, rather than the real raw, like pain in the trenches and the experience of what it's like to, to recover from it. And I mm -hmm. think if we give people that, that story and we start inspiring others to come forward, then maybe we can create a wave of, of not only survivors coming forward to tell their stories, but we can create a wave of people, parents and loved ones and partners to talk about what it's like to be near somebody that's recovering from this experience, because I think that reflection will help us as a society truly stop for a second and pay attention to how bad this problem really is and how widespread of an epidemic that sexual violence truly is in our world. And I think that's where the passion came from, was, was really just trying to help people get out of suffering. And I think identifying that we really need to address and, and and understand how bad this problem is is like one of the first steps. Mm -hmm. Well, that's perfectly put. It's it's one of those where I would encourage everyone, and we'll put more details at the end in the description. But you can read uh, the first, uh, I think it's a uh, twenty odd pages or so of your book uh, on uh, at least the Barnes Noble uh, website, and I read parts of it. And from that, one of the things I really appreciated as well is the first. Uh, you have the acknowledgments, but then the first real start of the book is uh, something from your wife and throughout this journey you know although you've been saying it is from your perspective in the sense of as a like a survivor's partner and, and trying to be there for them in the right ways without causing them any harm in you just trying to be there and understanding that the dynamics of what would be considered a standard in a relationship sometimes things take a little bit more thought in certain ways and it's just understanding how to act in certain situations and you start the book with with uh Kristen saying that and i just think that was so that that's a perfect way to start the book because it's really showing that this is a thing hand in hand this is something that you couldn't have even 
gone to understand without her openness for you in this. So the journey itself in you wanting to create uh, this piece of content, this book for people to, as you say, be a guidebook for those to help, it's also, it must have been quite cathartic for yourself and your partner of just not only going through that, as you say, with the journey you've already explained, but also trying to work out intrinsically how it's how you can help, how she can help you help her, and then how can that be translated as well. And you know um, in the book there's a, a triangle of sort of survivor, partner, therapist as well, and you recommend you know some professional help as well. So you have really thought about the sheer weight of this kind of issue and the amount of different elements you need to put inside of it and this book is just a way to kind of instead of the complicated thing where you're looking and it's like a hundred little things and it seems overwhelming you've tried in a way and as far as i read it seems very much like you've succeeded in this is trying to just show people so many people go through this but there is a way to make it somewhat easier for individuals involved but you 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 lay out the three paths and i wondered if you could tell us a little bit about those three paths because i think they really uh show your point very, very well. Yeah. uh, The three paths that I talk about in the book are the all-in path, the avoidance path, and then the abandonment path. And what that really does is it highlights certain mindsets that I myself have found myself on in any, like through this process. It was really identifying like what's the best mindset that I can have as a partner in any particular moment, as well as kind of an overall mindset. Because when we're all into something, that means we accept the good, the bad, and the ugly. That means we accept the process of growth. We accept that we're going to make mistakes and we can accept our growth process and making mistakes so we can say we're sorry. We can actually hear and listen to and receive feedback in how we can grow And we need to be all into that because in this particular trauma, I'm going to take a step back before I talk about the abandonment and the avoidance path, but because I think one of the key areas is really understanding this, the the nature of sexual violence in itself and how it affects somebody uh, on an individual basis, because it's the most holistic crime. If we were to really like, if we were to draw a continuum of crimes that can be committed against somebody and then look at kind of holistically uh, the experience that those crimes impact somebody at, like on an individual level, they're the, the entirety of the human experience. Sexual violence is one of those that, that really impacts somebody on like this grand holistic scale, just given the nature of it being a physical attack uh, on their physical body, the emotional and mental well-being gets, you know, uh, damaged and undermined. The the spiritual understanding and their connection to the world uh, can be completely shattered based on their worldview of, you know, kind of this higher authority being there to protect them or, you know, the, the worldview they may have with bad things, you know, not happening to good people. Why did this happen to me? I thought there was somebody there to protect me. So like, that can get shattered. This idea of safety and security, um, you know, agency and autonomy over their own body, the feeling of trust and being able to trust other people uh, gets completely undermined. Uh, There's the intimacy and sexuality that can get diminished and those feelings, the connection, the desire that they have to be close to somebody and the ability to be close to people. Um, And, you know, the importance of that piece it can't be really overstated just in the sense that, you know, 
the Maslow's hierarchy of needs has placed sex kind of down at the fundamental level next to food, water, shelter is love and connection and this sense of intimacy and belonging. And biologically, we're kind of programmed to seek it out in terms of, uh, you know, kind of procreating, you know, the species and things. So it's when somebody's disconnected from that, it can create this really deep sense of, uh, of loss that's sometimes even difficult to put words to. And economically, right? They did a study that showed, um, you know, over $122,000 over the lifetime of a survivor is the economic impact that based on lost wages, inability to go to work, mental health days, the treatment physically, the treatment for mental health situations, like that's a, that's a huge impact on somebody's life based on this one particular uh, crime that may have happened you know, just once in their life, or it could have happened over years and have, have been this incredibly uh, large scale trauma that's taken place in their life. And so when we see the crime of sexual violence as such a holistic crime against somebody, then we can look at the recovery process and go, well, then the recovery process is probably one of those that needs to be looked at as holistic as well, and really address every one of those elements that this person's uh, well-being has been attacked and and damaged. We need to approach each one of those areas. And so when we as a partner look at kind of our role in that recovery process from this holistic perspective, we can just kind of look at it and easily say, well, doctors and nurses take care of the physical body, right? They can go to get medical treatment for any of those types of wounds, and that can uh, typically heal itself uh, fairly quickly mental health professionals and spiritual leaders and guides and friends are there to help with the emotional and the mental and the spiritual sides of things. And, uh, you know, all of these different things, but what's the role that we as partners play in this? Like the, the intimate partner, the person that's going to share kind of this part of their life when we're bringing the, the easy one to spot is the intimacy and uh, sexuality back into their life. That's that's obviously one that we're going to share uh, with nobody else, really. Um, this is this is an aspect of their life that you know needs to get healed, that is a part of the recovery process. And it's also one that that stands one of the greatest chances of creating a negative emotional experience uh, when re-engaging with that. In all other therapies, we would call this a pretty high stakes exposure therapy in terms of re-engaging with something that was kind of in the arena of what caused the trauma to begin with. The circumstances, the settings, and the people may be different. Uh, the vibe and the energy is different, but you know the fact that the body keeps score Sometimes the body has a lot of stored and pent up trauma that's not going to get released until it gets placed into that kind of environment that it can start to release it. And so we start to realize that it's not that we're running away from this trauma. We're, we're actually needing to actually face it for what it really is. And our role in that as partners becomes so huge. And so the idea of these three paths comes from this concept of going, okay, if we look at this particular piece of the recovery process, helping somebody bring back the intimacy and the sexuality, but that has to incorporate their physical body. It has to incorporate their mental and emotional well-being. It's going to incorporate the their spiritual understanding because, you know, even though, you know, I, I am no professional in the realm of sexuality and human sexuality, but what I do know from my experience is that sexuality encompasses 
the physical body, the mental and emotional bodies, the spiritual understanding, you know, this sense of intimacy, there's trust, like all of those areas that get damaged during that kind of uh, crime of sexual violence. Well, all of that comes into play when we start to re-engage with intimacy and sexuality. So there's this huge level of responsibility that then starts to present itself. So as partners, we have to really understand those paths that we could take. We're either all in, in terms of what we're about to face, because we don't really have a crystal ball that lets us know, oh, this particular sexual experience is going to go completely off the rails and they're going to have a PTSD reaction. And what we once thought was going to be this passionate moment and kind of pursue this orgasmic bliss is on a dime going to change. And now we're in this dark space where they're, you know, pushing us away, rolling over the emotional distance and physical distance. They're in tears, right? Like there's real trauma being processed in this particular moment. And it all happens in the flash of a second. And we're having to navigate our emotional reaction in this moment, plus make space for their emotional reaction that's taking place in that moment. It becomes what I call in the book, the worst case scenario is like, it's this Olympic level emotional intelligence test that we don't get prepared for. We're just thrown into the deep end and go here, manage your own emotions and your emotional swing from taking this one cluster of emotions, which is sexual activity that creates this like overwhelming abundance of really good, everything that we're trying to pursue from a biological and spiritual level. We're like, you know, reaching towards the heavens basically. And all of a sudden, boom, we've been cast down in a matter of a second. And now we're in this incredibly dark, deep hole of trauma. And we're having to navigate that literally in the span of like seconds. And those swings of emotions are an incredibly intense uh, moment. And yet we're not given the soft skills. We're not given the education. We're not therapists. You know, for the most part, we're not uh, trained professionals. And yet we're having to navigate one of the most high stakes exposure therapies that I think exists on the planet in terms of like trauma recovery. And so it's the mindset of these three paths. We're either all in. Or we're going to avoid our responsibility, which can ultimately lead to further trauma in the sense that a negative emotional experience happens and we go, you know what, this isn't my responsibility. I don't, I don't need to, you know, deal with your feelings right now. I'm going to get stuck in my own disappointment and frustration that the sexual experience didn't go the way that I want it to. So I'm going to kind of put this guilt and shame on you that just kind of further compounds the guilt and shame spiral they may already be in. And so we're just going to kind of just create this swirl and cluster of more negative emotions that continue to cause harm that just stacks on top of the trauma that's already there. And then, you know, the abandonment path is really the, uh, you know, I don't even want to be in this relationship. I don't even like, I don't even want to like be near this. And yet, you know, in order to help this person go through this healing process, it's the all in is really the place that the healing takes place. And so it's really recognizing that our goal is not to heal them. Our goal is to really help create an environment that they can begin to like heal themselves in so that we can create a safe environment to be able to process these emotions. It's not like we can avoid these uncomfortable situations. It's not like we can know that these negative emotional experiences during sex are going to come up. We actually, in my opinion, probably need to assume they will at some point and then just have a strategy and plan in place to like help manage those moments 
to create the best environment possible for the processing that, that needs to take place to take place. But that requires us to, to really accept the role and the responsibility that that really means, you know, because in every other context, right, any other trauma, the therapist has accepted that role and responsibility. They've gone to years and years of training. There's, you know, regulatory bodies that manage the ethics around everything that they're trying to do. And in any other trauma, if they were leading them through exposure therapy, that person is, it, it knows their role, right? They, they know what they're up against. And in so many cases, they did it intentionally. They went through this exposure therapy, knowing that the likelihood of a negative emotional reaction was, was there to happen. And they're there to help them walk through it where we as partners, you know, all across the globe, millions of people are finding themselves in these situations and they're just, you know, we're flying blind. And so I think that's where approaching this material from that space of all in avoidance abandonment path is really understanding, you know, how do we create the healthiest environment possible? Mm, very well put. And it's, I, myself, I have uh, been in relationships with people in the past who have gone through um, some degree of uh, sexual trauma. And I think as you've uh, put in this uh, conversation thus far, one, if if you think you don't know someone who has experienced uh, sexual trauma, it's likely that you know several people. They've just not spoken about it, which obviously because it's a very traumatic and difficult thing. But the amount of individuals who have experienced some kind of that is absolutely staggering. It, it's horrendous when you delve into it. I myself know several people, a variety of different ages, who've experienced a variety of uh, extremes of those kinds of uh, assaults and things. So it is one of those things where not only do we not know in ourselves if something happened to us, if we were sexually assaulted, how one processes that, aside from punish the person who did it and, you know, for a very reductive, unhelpful term, get over it. That's basically the only thing we really know. And then to take it one step further than that, not only is if someone goes through that, other people around them, especially those who are the closest to them, who will, in most uh, situations, go through some degree of intimacy with them especially and spend a lot of time with them especially in their most vulnerable places they're the times that these triggers can strike and they're the times which we wouldn't know what to do and i found myself in the past um, more so when i was a teenager because i've been with my um, partner megan for several years now but when i was younger and i was dating women who were experiencing these things it was a difficult place to navigate because I myself, especially at that age, was trying to find myself and also was trying to figure out interactions with a partner while they're also going through something. And different women that I've been with, I've known about the degree of the trauma in different amounts. But I have found that when they have been receptive to having a more open form of communication when I'm receptive to doing it in the right times and in the right ways and on their terms rather than trying to push and force you know as you say you kind of let them heal around you and whatever they want to share or help you get over with and things like that in their own time it's all in that communication you have to really learn from them and just be exactly what they truly need and often not what you actually want you know a lot of partners and I think a lot of there's a very broad stereotype in things, but in just a humor me in this, the majority of men I know in relationships have a mindset which is meant to be helpful, but can often be problematic, which is the problem fixer. And um, I've spoken with uh, people on this podcast, friends of mine, about, especially with pregnancy, when a woman is pregnant, especially during childbirth, 
uh, their partner, if male, often will want to just fix things. I'm not saying this is ex- exclusive to males, but just in this uh, example. And they just want to fix things and they want to help. And it's like, in that scenario, you can't do anything apart from be there. That In childbirth, you can't. It's You're not a professional. You just have to kind of be there. And when you're talking about trauma and especially something when it is sexual trauma and the depths of which that can take hold of someone's life in a variety of different ways with a variety of different triggers, you have to be there. You can't just show up and that fixes the problem. You can't just, you can't be there with them for just a year and be like, oh, I've been with you for this amount of time. Therefore, you should be okay now. You really, it's a very difficult place to navigate and it can be a make or break in some relationships because some uh, individuals may find that it's their fault that their partner isn't healing enough and their partners may feel like it's their partner in a reverse way. There's so many different ways. And I think the core thing that you've very eloquently put is it's about communication and understanding. And it's if you can, if they can be at the forefront of your mind and if they can be the driving forces in the healing process and in a wider sense, in a relationship you are fostering with this individual, if you can keep those as the main cause, it, over time, there will be trials and tribulations. There will be times it won't always work out. But if they are the main thing and you put those first and the um, what your partner needs first, you can go through with that. And I think that your guidebook basically so eloquently puts that forward with very well-written and well-thought-out methodology, which I really appreciate. Oh, well, thank you for that. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more with how you just like reiterated uh, that point was you know, just speaking to this environment, right, that we create as partners. Uh, and it helps me be conscious of really the environment that I create in all aspects of my life and any setting that I'm in, but especially around, you know, healing and recovery. And one of the things that I talk about in the book, I, I, I give this kind of anecdotal story kind of talking about this point when we think about physical healing, it becomes like if we're healing from a physical injury, it, it becomes a little bit easy to, to really spot how much the environment supports or hinders a recovery process, right? So like if you and I break our leg and we're recovering from that versus somebody that's like a professional athlete breaking their leg and they're recovering from that, we can easily spot the differences in our healing environment versus that professional athlete's healing environment from the medical care they receive to all the aftercare that they're going to receive to, you know, just the environment of people there to help them, you know, just get from one place to another, take their medications, get them water and food, help them go to the bathroom versus like maybe our environments. We live in a second or third story apartment building. You know, we don't have a lot of people around us to help us in that space. So, you know, we may be putting our physical injury into an environment that potentially could cause more damage and create a longer span of time for that healing to take place. It's easy to see that from a physical space. But if we place that on the like mental and emotional recovery as well, like when people are going to therapy and they're going to uh, you know, a mental health practitioner to overcome traumas in their life, even if it's outside of the realm of sexual violence, it, it really starts to, to paint a more clear picture about the environments that we are healing in. Because, you know, one of the uh, another story I talk about in the book is that we my wife and I, we had a friend of ours come and live with us because she was going to therapy and we could see that she was making strides in therapy, but then she would go home to an incredibly toxic environment 
And it would like, she would take one, two steps forward in therapy and then take three or four steps back when she would go home because she would go home to a, a place where her and her mom had a very contentious relationship and it would further the traumas that she was trying to work on. And so she was never able to like really make the progress and strides that she could have made elsewhere. So we actually allowed her to come and live and stay with us as a roommate for, you know, three years so that she could have a healthy and safe healing environment. And she made incredible strides to be able to now live on her own and get gainful employment and, you know, really pursue uh, a life that, uh, you know, my wife and I feel pretty confident might not have been possible had she stayed in that one particular unhealthy environment. And so it really just kind of paints a picture about showing up and how we're showing up as partners into this environment that somebody is healing from sexual trauma. And if we are an intimate partner, meaning we, you know, we come to the relationship with expectations about intimacy and what that means and sex and, uh, you know, physical touch and, uh, you know, emotional energies and how we're showing up in an environment with our own emotions uh, and our own traumas and our own baggage and stuff like that. And once we're conscious of, oh, wait, you know, if we come home from work and we're super angry, well, how is this person that's that's healing from this trauma, whether it's sexual violence or maybe it's a domestic violence situation, maybe it's an intimate partner, like there's all sorts of different traumas. It just starts to get us to think about, well, what is the environment that not only are we creating for somebody else to heal, but what's the environment that other people are creating around us for us to heal? You know, and it really starts to kind of paint a bigger picture about the importance that these environments play on the work that we're doing, you know, like if we're going to therapy and get out of therapy to come home to an environment that's toxic, it doesn't allow us to heal. Well, it just, it, it changes that perspective a little bit. And we go, oh, now we can kind of place it on ourselves and go, oh, I'm that person that's creating an environment around this person who's healing from something incredibly traumatic. So how am I showing up? Like when they tell me about, you know, a trigger they had or something I've said, what is my reaction in that moment? You know, and it, it just starts to really inform how we show up in these different moments. And then, you know, especially in those moments where we're like actually engaged in sex and something goes wrong, like we can really think about the just environment we, you know, we influence on a, you know, kind of a daily basis. Mm, yeah. And I like that in the book as well, you illustrate some of these environments in in a more micro sense because obviously where you're speaking about environment you're talking about in very loose terms it can be the house you live in it can be you know work environments it can be the, the kind of being in your area of vicinity you know so many different layers to uh, environment but with your book you you go into spe specific you give examples that are very open and very honest and i very much uh, as an individual who likes to foster places of honesty where possible speaking about something that's so traumatic for your partner but also something that's so you know vulnerable for you and you lay out some of your missteps and you lay out some of the ways in which you can kind of grow from it and learn and make yourself better so with the book itself what i want to ask about is the process of writing it like if you don't mind me asking how long did it kind of take you to write this kind of book and what other experience have you had in in writing like the process because obviously writing for example fiction book is quite linear in a lot of ways so it's, it's very much like i've got a story in mind i've got a vague idea of the start and the end a couple of cool characters let's do that you know and then when it comes to a strictly non-fiction book it's purely research and it's you know xyz so when it's this kind of this book that's is a non-fiction book but it is also a part of your real true life story and your partners and how you go across that how was it putting something so uh 
so open about yourself and so clear in in writing and in words because it's it's quite an impressive feat to do. Oh well, I I appreciate that kind of acknowledgement. Uh, it was terrifying, to be honest. Like it was it was one of those things that I was stepping forward and going. I know that I need to do this, um, but it's it's a scary thing to do because you know it took me five years to write this book because mm-hmm. of the fact that a lot of it was kind of. Uh, peppered with my own recovery process. And so, you know, you were right in the beginning, you said it was a cathartic experience, um, you know, and it, it was in a lot of ways. It was very, uh, it, it helped me kind of overcome a lot of uh, challenges that I faced. It allowed me to reflect on some of my accomplishments uh, and a lot of the growth that took place. Um, but it was also a very uh, re-traumatizing experience because I would write about, you know, something really bad that happened to my wife or to a friend of mine or to, you know, just somebody in society in in particular, you know, trying to really grapple with how am I finding my voice in this, right? Because one of the things that I feel like it was really terrifying about it was that I am writing this book at a time. And obviously the title, you know, suggests I, I tried to find a title that would tell people what this book is about uh, without really, you know, creating the the trauma right off of it, right out of the gate. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if I just used words like rape or sexual assault, it's like, obviously like, whoa, you know, like that to a survivor that can be traumatizing and to, you know, the rest of the public, they're kind of like, ah, I don't want to really want to approach that at all. It doesn't make it approachable. And so there was this, there was this aspect of writing it where it was, trying to f- struggle with finding my voice in this conversation because i feel like we're at a time where you know there's this there, there there's everyone's got an opinion everyone has you know this idea that their opinion about everything matters there's this idea that you know the only thing that really makes you an expert is if you watched a few videos on youtube about it and now you can just create an entire business model around something because you watched a few videos on it. And now you, you can just, you know, kind of pose yourself as an expert. Um, and so I didn't want to come off like that. I didn't want to come off as somebody that was like just exploiting the idea that there was this me too movement and, Oh, here's this resource that I could make money on. Um, it really wanted to be about the material rather than about this platform. Like if there was a way for me to just, be out of the picture and to just give this resource to the world and I didn't have to be the face of it, I would absolutely take that on because it's not about me. It's not about, you know, and that's why I'm trying to partner with so many different uh, organizations to help provide resources for them is like really creating a conduit of resource around this issue um, because of that aspect of that kind of imposter syndrome, I guess, that Mm -hmm. I feel in a sense of like going do we need another straight white guy out here giving his opinion on a sensitive issue and like kind of interjecting his voice into the world and, you know, trying to stand and, you know, do we, do we need more of that? You know, it was a question that I grappled with and especially around this issue when it was like the me too movement in essence, right. Was really about a lot of survivors feeling like they didn't have a voice. And so they're standing up to try and scream from the rooftops, like, Hey, please listen and and validate what our experience has been. Um, and I, I'm, you know, seeing that and then competing with that feeling is uh, I want to, I want to help, 
but in doing so, am I silencing voices at the same time? So there's like this, this, this kind of double-edged kind of multifaceted, multi-truth thing that I was grappling with while writing it. Mm. And I think there was a, a moment that happened for me while I was writing it was just, uh, was the, the chapter that I wrote on rape cultures, which was really trying to approach a phrase that I think was like one of the most hot button kind of issues that I feel like came out of uh, the Me Too movement and in at least the public discourse was this concept of rape cultures that uh, had such strong opposition to the idea because it became this uh, men's rights kind of group talking about it being this feminine idea, trying to women just trying to go out and ruin the lives of good men and, you know, and kind of discrediting the notion that rape culture even exists. And it was in that process of like, okay, how do I approach the idea? Because I think it's a really important one to understand as a partner, because we, in that concept of environment, right, that we create in the healing process, the idea was that a rape culture is not just society as a whole. A rape culture is also the environment within a home. Because if, you know, looking at this issue and looking at sexual violence, you have to like break it up into all these little different pieces because it's not all the same, right? Child abuse is different than intimate partner violence, which is different than college, you know, sexual assault, which is different than, you know, the power that's being used by Hollywood executives to, you know, control actresses, you know, it's all just this different environment, right? Where, you know, the Aziz Ansari story, the, 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 the comedian, his story is different than Harvey Weinstein's story in terms of the, 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 the impact and the effect and the, the dynamics. And so if we don't create nuance, it's really challenging to kind of have, have these conversations. And so I was looking at that when I was writing the rape culture chapter and it, it helped me realize that, oh no, my voice, my voice is needed here because I could find this lane of experience that I had as a partner that gives me so much more, um, I guess leverage I, I might be the wrong word, but it, it, it's more so like credibility because I'm coming at it from a place that's just like, let's, let's try and reduce the amount of trauma. But in doing so, we have to educate ourselves. And so if we understand the environment that we create to help our partners heal, then really understanding what a rape culture could be within the context of a home then we can actually start to address what the concepts that make up a rape culture is as well. And it helps us define the role. And it really helped me to find my voice in that because it was just going, oh, wait, I'm not sitting here just like beating on the drum and parroting a lot of what is said in the media and the news. We're really having a nuanced conversation. And I think that's where the strength of the, the of my voice came was recognizing the power of the nuanced conversation really is that's where change is going to happen is in these longer form conversations. And I think it's, you know, why I feel so grateful that people like yourselves are willing to have me on and have these types of conversations is because they, they do require you to like air out some of the, the ideas because they're way complex, you know, and it's like writing the book, writing that chapter, the struggle that it was to, 
recover while at the same time articulate a solution and also hold space for the fact that I'm not a professional and that I'm not really coming to the table saying I have all the answers. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, I think that's where the, the challenge of putting something like this together was, was, you know, it's, it's a hope. It's a, it's a, it's an inspiration to hopefully get other people that have been in my position to stand up, raise their hand, to be counted and talk about their experiences. Because I think it's so important that we continue the conversation to get the nuances aired out, mm -hmm. right? Every, ex every survivor's experience is different. So every partner's experience is also, I would assume, going to be a little bit different as well. Even though there's going to be similarities, we really need to air all of that out. And so I think that was a, a long-winded way of saying yes. That's perfect. Was a, was a really challenging thing to put together for sure. Mm, no, and it, it's a subject, as you say, it's, it's not a simple subject. And there's a few elements that I, I want to mention, which is, you know, where you uh, humbly put out and said, if you could just kind of spread this book more, but without yourself attached to it, uh, then that will be amazing. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't know your book as well, it's um, for April, you're in the campaign for the Institute for Surviving uh, Sexual Violence. And I'll put uh, links and details in the description, where 50% of the book's proceeds will go to that charity. And I know that you've been doing a lot of other sort of charitable works, like before this book's inception, but in, in general, but also just many other elements of your life. So I, I believe you when you say that thing specifically, and it's, you know, spending your time coming on these podcasts and things and speaking about these things is to try and widen the net and let people know. And I think that, you know, imposter syndrome is something that even celebrities and people very high up who one would assume should be there speaking about certain things, that happens to everyone. So you're not alone in, in the imposter syndrome, but it's very good to confirm to people that you're not saying you have every answer that you're trying to you know very in part of your writing this book you know some of the difficulties you've put it is trying to put this out there and trying to convey what you found and your experience and your perspectives without trying to dampen anyone else's and as i said towards the start of this when i read the uh, sample of your book and it showed what your partner said and what her experience was in this book and your experience kind of combined together that for me really showed that that you know there are lots of literature there's lots of pieces of literature about different perspectives of sexual assault and getting through it and how there are different ways but with yours it is that kind of thing of yeah how how do you almost almost before the or as the the survivor is just starting the healing process, how do we around them kind of do like chapter zero in a sense? You know, they need to start this chapter on their recovery experience. How do we kind of do the prologue? How how do we get there before, you know, or as they're learning this and make it as easy for them as possible so that almost like um like a safety thing around them, just so there's as few triggers as there can be, and there's so many ways in which one can help. And I think one thing this book does quite well as well is um, the the different ways you convey certain elements. So you'll explain it in a certain way and then you'll give another example or another way of saying it. And one thing that I quite liked to uh, show this example of how eloquently you put these things is your preferred defini definition of recovery. I find that to be quite an interesting element. So I wondered if you could share that uh, yourself because there's a part of that at the start of the book as well. Yeah, I think that... The the idea of recovery is such a it, it's fascinating to me because it is such an individual definition. Mm -hmm. Like we as a society, I feel like we've organized a lot of our whole reality around creating one size fits all 
answers to things so that we are all operating off of, you know, the same uh, reality. So we're not, you know, we limit the shared reality conflicts that can arise um, when we're operating from different definitions. But what I find really interesting about recovery is that it in so many ways means so many different things to, uh, to each individual. And it's something I think that, um, especially in my research for this book, just really became, it was almost an antagonist in a sense. Uh, I don't know if I put that correctly, but it was like this idea that I was butting up against all the time because I feel like when writing a nonfiction book, you know, you're, you're trying to create this uh, articulated truth that people can kind of walk away with uh, and, and know like this is a concrete, you know, either opinion that is supported by here's all this research that I did that supports why I have this opinion. And yet recovery was one of these interesting ideas when it came to sexual violence was because every piece of research that I would, that I would pull in would really show that there are so many variables to this particular trauma that really render the recovery process from it so varied as well. Like if we took a hundred people who all experienced the exact same trauma, they would have all experienced that trauma differently. Their life experience that led up to that moment of trauma is now going to influence how they now live and reconcile and assimilate the trauma and process the trauma. And then the recovery from that also starts to get varied. So it becomes this very nuanced thing. And so when I was, when I was, trying to find the pieces about talking about recovery that I could really, rather than abstract, really hone in on, it came down to therapy. It came down to this modality of going, wait, what I want you to walk away from this book realizing is that the recovery process doesn't have to be long and scary. It doesn't have to be this incredibly deep, painful thing that drags on for decades of your life. Um, you know, because watching my wife and I recover it was this it was this dance between those those three things that i put at the very beginning of the book which is the survivor the partner and the therapist which is really more so a team of therapy in that sense and you know the partner being the the not only the intimate partner but you know the colleagues and friends and family like kind of in, in, incorporate this kind of trifecta of healing in the sense and what i realized was that having this dance between people who are trauma informed in your life and effective therapy modalities such as you know the the reason that I'm so excited to do this whole event with the Institute for Survivors of Sexual Violence is because it's that's a organization that was founded by the founder of rapid resolution therapy which is one of the therapy modalities that my wife has used multiple times in her life to recover from uh from a number of different things but one of the major ones has been sexual violence. And to see how quickly that therapy modality works is, I mean, it's a miracle in itself. And it's its something that I believe, you know, I will scream from the rooftops until my dying day. When I look at the kind of industry of mental health, a lot of it is there's a conflict of interest if we're really honest with it, right? If we're really honest with therapy, there's a conflict of interest uh, from an institutional side to the, you know, patient side, uh, you know, the, the amount of money that can be made keeping people in therapy their whole lives 
is a conflict in terms of the reduction of trauma, the reduction of pain and suffering that somebody can be in. And I feel like the reason I resonate so much with the idea of recovery being so quick is because rapid resolution therapy was designed to literally create the shortest path from suffering to recovery that I think exists. And it was designed by somebody who has a, a, that same mentality, that he's trying to work himself out of a job. And he created something that he gives to the world. And it's such, it, it, it's such a powerful tool for people. And so it was like when creating this tool, talking about recovery, it was, it was just one of those pieces that I just wanted to bring to the world and, and, and shout from the rooftops was recovery while it is varied and it will be varied for each individual's experience of what that means for them, there is a path to walk that I believe we can, you know, almost like the, the childhood game shoots and ladders where we could like create little shortcuts on the path, right? We could, we can create this little ladder that you can get further down the road uh, in your recovery process by, by implementing these, these strategies um, and implementing these uh, therapy modalities into your life, because ultimately the sooner we can reduce the suffering, the 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 faster we can get back to living a really fulfilled and and happy life. Mm, yeah, and it's it's one of the notes I had down, which was a rapid resolution therapy. And was I right in thinking that since the experiences that uh, Kristen has had with this doctor, she has gone into training to be able to help people in that same fashion with the uh, rapid resolution therapy? And also, I know that she's done a TED talk. Were those two things related as well? They were, yeah. So she um, she did a TEDx talk in 2013 about kind of this drastic recovery that she got from rapid resolution therapy. She was a she had been a patient of the Mayo Clinic for over two years. She was suffering seizures up to nine times a day. She was in a wheelchair wearing a helmet. She was kind of afraid she was going to die at any minute because she was suffering narcolepsy and Tourette syndrome and dystonia, like just basically a complete neurological breakdown uh, caused by traumatic grief because her sister had uh, been killed by a drunk driver. And so this, you know, she was a patient of the Mayo Clinic for, and they had no idea what was going on for over two years. And it wasn't until she got in to see Dr. Connolly, uh, the founder of Rapid Resolution Therapy, uh, for just one two and a half hour session. And she's been seizure free and symptom free uh, ever since that one session. And so when she kind of just had this, you know, almost miraculous kind of healing in that one particular case where, you know, everything that the doctors and nurses have been trying to do just made her symptoms worse. She gets in for this one session of this particular modality and boom, she's been seizure free ever since. She immediately went to train under him because she was like, this is my purpose in life is to give people the same kind of uh, recovery that I've you know, been able to achieve here. And so, you know, for the last 14, 15 years, she's been a rapid resolution therapy facilitator. Um, she's now, you know, training, you know, hundreds of other therapists all over the world to be able to provide this type of modality uh, to, to others. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, she went and gave a TED, TEDx talk. They, they allowed her to get on stage and talk about it. It's got a million and a half views. Like, I mean, it, it, it really is one of those things that has brought so many people to the path of healing. Uh, her Ted talk was like, she just gets people that all over the world that see the Ted talk, reach out to her, uh, get incredible healing. Uh, so it's been this just 
incredible journey to watch her go from the state that she was in to this place of, you know, healing and recovery. And even through the the traumas that she experienced, multiple sexual assaults, um, you know, utilizing the power of rapid resolution therapy through her recovery process. And she never slid back into uh, those, you know, neurological breakdown symptoms and everything. So I just, yeah, I can't, I can't speak high enough of rapid resolution therapy for sure. It's amazing to hear about. And as I said, I'll put uh, details and links in the description so people can check all of those things that you've uh, mentioned out. And it's, it's one of those because obviously Kristen is like tackling it from the therapy side now in her life and you're tackling it still from the the partner side as it's it's an ongoing thing but you are both in your own ways you know trying to push for good in this world and it's something that is so it's so inspiring and it's just incredible to see because you know there's so many people who experience trauma or have interactions with those who experience trauma and you know it's not an easy thing to be a partner of someone with trauma and one other thing that i do like in your book which is something which it's very honest and it's very open and things and it's i think in line with where the three parts are which is a line that says it it's along the lines of no one should stay with a partner due from this feeling of obligation and i think that in context of that book and i'll let you elaborate further on that but from where i interpret it interpreted it is just like you have to want to help you you have to want to be there and want that and the thing is with both yourself and Kristen have got that that dedication that driving force both separately but obviously together even more unstoppable is just that that force for good and you have to have that to go on this path and to be able to help people in this way but I just thought that that line of dialogue line of dialogue the, the line in your book it just works obviously i was paraphrasing it but just the idea of it works so well because you're also being frank with people you're saying to people you know you can't just pick up this book and half ass it and then you're just obviously because one of the paths is the all-in method you know that's that's the path you want to go but it's like you not everyone's going to succeed at this and maybe this thing won't work for absolutely every single person but this way if you commit and you try this it should be able to help you it should be able to work and it's just putting out those different tools for people to be able to use and you just want this tool to be able to be used by as many people as possible because the sheer amount of people can help and i just really appreciate that and especially linking in with that element of the book too mm. well no thank you i i appreciate that i the way you articulated i don't know if i could uh do it any better it, it, <laughs> no it really is a it, it's a great it's a great way of illustrating that idea and i'm glad that it was interpreted that way because it was really intended to to hit people in that same kind of manner is just this idea that um it you shouldn't be a, you know ever in a relationship out of obligation and the the honest reality is when this you know type of trauma if it does falls into your relationship and creates you know these these challenges which oftentimes can feel like these immovable objects um and kind of just insurmountable obstacles here um you shouldn't approach it from this feeling of like oh well i guess i have to um it it really does need to come from a place of going okay here's this person i you know i care about i want to build with i i want to be in the trenches you know link up next to and realize that this is me and them against the trauma rather than this idea of 
you know, it's them against their trauma and I'll just be here kind of waiting and see if, you know, oh, well, if they get to a place where, you know, they're recovered enough to to meet my needs in the way that I expect them to be able to, then I'll just kind of wait around for that. Um, it, it, I, I don't know that the evidence suggests that that's going to work well mm-hmm. for really anybody, right? No one wants to approach a relationship with that. No one wants to be in a relationship with somebody that has that mindset. And so we just have to check ourselves and be really honest about it and go, is this something that we are at this time willing to face because, you know, I talk about it in that, I I think in that same space was, you know, the best decision you could make if you were like already feeling like at the beginning, I just don't want to do this. I'm just not prepared. And it's like literally at a place where I'm like, I don't want to do this. Then the best decision you can make is to walk away because to be somebody that's just there out of a sense of obligation, to be there out of just some, you know, sense of, well, you know, this person was here, I want them and I want them to be meeting my needs or, you know, any other sense of kind of, you know, psychological, uh, you know, attraction thing. It just creates an environment that I don't think anybody is going to be happy in. And it prevent, you know, provides kind of this uh, I guess a, a fertile ground for more trauma to continue to just exist. And I think that, yeah, the best, the best course of action is to, is to make a hard decision in that moment. If, if you're feeling like, Oh, well, I'm going to be here out of a sense of, I have to be, um, I don't know. That's a mindset that's going to help be the most successful. And, and if we can, if we can move towards that place of going, I want to be here, I'm here with you. Right. It kind of came from that sense of like military background where it was like, I'm not, you know, sure, I may have joined out of this big abstract idea that I want to serve my country, but the day in and day out really becomes I'm here to, you know, help the person next to me, right? When I was on a submarine, it was like, I'm studying right now. I'm learning everything I can about this submarine. I'm, you know, I want to be able to take immediate actions because I know in the event that something catastrophic happens, it may be my responsibility to save 130 other people. And those are the people that I care about. They're the ones that are here right now with me going through this particular situation. And it's that mindset that's like, I'm in this relationship with this person and and we we have this challenge that we need to face. And yes, it may be their challenge to face as an individual because they're the ones having to do all the heavy lifting, but we as a as a partnership have to face this if we're if we are going to get through it. Um and I think just showing up as a teammate and, you know, is really, really important. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And we'll, we'll start to wrap up here. And there's other couple of little points uh, regarding your book, which was a sort of line that you say, or at least me paraphrasing, is that it's a progress driven process. You know, that's how it is. It's not necessarily one size fits all. As you said at the start of this conversation, it's holistic. It's bespoke. It has to, you have to, what you're kind of doing is you're giving people the tools and not quite the rules, but guides of how to maneuver in certain situations with an individual who's experienced this it's not if your partner won't do this you do this and they will because that's the complete wrong way of doing anything it is just the environment as you say and it's that it's a process it's just every day trying and hoping that today the amount of triggers or trauma or things like that are lower and how comfortable they are is just increased or the same and it's just if you have those slips you know it will happen but trying to stay you know above it trying to get through it and there's also a thing i wrote down which is like a pain feedback loop which is something that i think links in with what you were just saying as well which is if you're not there and you're not wanting to help and you're not really putting 100 percent into it and you're not 
wanting to help your partner, then you may end up actually causing more harm. And then it'll be this kind of negative loop where they're not doing the things you want them to do. And because of that, you're being less receptive to things they need. And then that makes it worse. And it goes, and it's all just about a long process, you know, long term being in air quotes, because as you say, you know, it it wouldn't have to be decades and decades and decades, but it's not a tomorrow you wake up and things are fine. I'll I'll read this book, I'll follow it for a week and then done. It's, It's not like that at all. And I think most people would realize that nothing really in life is like that. There's no simple, quick, easy fix. And I once again appreciate your frankness, your openness and honesty and just being with this book in itself and with this conversation of just trying to help people best you can without it trying to be a way of you saying you have all the answers and just really yourself and your partner being just a force for good. And I just love so many of the elements that you've shared in this conversation and in that book uh, itself. Oh, thank you. I, I, yeah, I really appreciate that. And I, I will just second everything you just said about that being a process uh, of progress and and really just being patient uh, with that process. And ultimately, you know, it's not about perfection. There's no there's no real like 100% right way of doing this. It's really about approaching it with that mindset of growth and uh, you know impatience and, and realizing that you know everyone's if we both, you know, if everyone in the situation is approaching it, doing the best that they can, then that's, that's what we, you know, that's all we can ask. And as partners, that's what we have to show up and do is going, are we doing our best, you know, and are we learning from the mistakes we make? And can we prevent some of the mistakes that we could have made by preparing ourselves beforehand? And I think that's, that's really the ultimate message of the book is to, is to really, you know, just try and be as prepared as possible. And then just know that along the way, we're going to have to, you know, forgive ourselves for, for some of the mistakes and, uh, and learn from those. Incredible. So it's been a delight speaking with you. Please tell people um, all the all the ways that people can uh, find you. Obviously, repeat the name of your book, your social media plugs. I would also throw in there that I want to put a link in the description for the song that you released under Lord Hamilton called Stop Being a Slave to Fear. I think it's a really good song. You know, if it wasn't, I wouldn't mention it. Uh, but I, I genuinely think it's really, really cool. So, you know, I want people to check that out as well as the book, as well as you on social media and to help you in any sort of other events or things you're involved with and creative processes and there's a graphic novel series that you're starting to work on as well all kinds of things so you probably won't be able to remember it all because i also just threw a lot of things at you so just say what you can i'll put everything else in the description and sort of final things that you want to say and any other plugs and we'll start to wrap up no i just uh, i just want to say thank you again for this opportunity to come on and kind of have this conversation it's been uh it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you um and yeah, I think people can find the all of what you've just talked about on seanhamilton.com, S-H-A-U-N-H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N.com. Uh, it goes in and the about page talks about, you know, the song that I wrote uh, is that song that you mentioned was a song that I wrote when I was 18 years old uh, after I, you know, that was something I had mentioned at the very beginning was uh, a song that I wrote trying to process and deal with a lot of what my first relationship had been kind of marred by this dark cloud that had been over my relationship was all the trauma that my first girlfriend had gone through. And it was just a way of me processing that was to write a a song kind of telling her story. Um, And that song is actually when I, uh, on the about page, it kind of goes in and talks about a little bit of talking to high school students. Uh, And this was before the book, before my, my wife and I were together, I was using that song to go in and talk about gender violence. And so it's kind of a, 
you know, it's just been a life's calling, I guess, to kind of be out there doing this work. And uh, this is just another part of it. So you can learn about that at seanhamilton.com. Again, you can buy the book when your partner says hashtag me too, uh, your role and responsibilities in their recovery process. You can, the links are there. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's on Amazon. um, And you can uh, kind of follow me on Instagram if you'd like at real Sean P. that's uh, R-E-A-L-S-H-A-U-N-P um, on Instagram. Yeah. And then just, uh, yeah, reach out and and be a part of the conversation, join the community, really, because it's just trying to collect a bunch of like minds and, uh, you know, kindred spirits that want to go out there and make as much good happen in the world as we can. Um, like you said, if you want to buy the book uh, during this month, it would be greatly appreciated. We're kind of launching a campaign to get to number one on Amazon. Uh, during the week uh, that the call, the day of action here in the month of April is based on the fact that it's sexual assault awareness month and the day of action is the fifth. So from the fifth to the 12th, basically that seven day window, we're trying to get everybody who wants to buy the book to buy the book then. Uh, But the entire month of April proceeds are going to the Institute of Survivors of Sexual Violence to help provide free therapy uh, for survivors um, and so all of, you know, any, anytime you, you purchase a book, you're, you're going to be, uh, given money towards, you know, therapy and survivors and any kind of organizations on the deck plate. But if you hear this in time from the fifth to the 12th, uh, we'd really appreciate it. Cause we're just trying to, you know, get Amazon to help promote us. So, uh, this topic is difficult to get the big tech companies to, uh, be friendly towards. And so we're trying to hack the system. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if we, we could have any and all help in that space, we greatly appreciate it. So thank you again, Mike, for having me on. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. No worries at all. It's been delightful to have you. And uh, yeah, everyone just check out details in the description. Please follow Sean and support wherever you can. And I'm sure we'll speak to Sean in the future on this very show. But just thank you so much again for listening. And we'll speak to you soon. And that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my friends, make sure you check out Sean's website, which a link to that is in the description, as well as his wife Kristen's TED Talk about rapid resolution therapy. And if you do go to his website as well and sign up to the newsletter, you will get access to the first full chapter of his book as well. So really hope you guys can do that and support Sean where you can. And you can follow him on Instagram at P. But yeah, please reach out to him if you found that this has helped you at all, because it's just one of those conversations that I wouldn't say I enjoyed having necessarily, but I feel like it was very important and it's one of the core values of this show. So what have we got coming up? Well, next week should be my episode of Disney Discussions number six. So it's a completely different subject matter to this conversation, completely different vibe. Going to be one of those conversations where you can just sit back and relax and listen to myself and Megan, Spider-Dan and Rhea all speak about three Disney films. It's going to be the underrated animated Disney films. So I chose The Emperor's New Groove, Atlantis, The Lost Empire and Treasure Planet. So you can check that out next week. Then I've got a few other bits and pieces in the pipeline for recording, a couple of familiar faces, a couple of new people people, a couple more authors. So just look out for those things. I'll give you more information once I've got those episodes recorded. A great way to stay up to date with myself is signing up to the Pop Culture Collective newsletter. A link to that is in the description. It's pccnewsletter.com. And myself, Spider Dan, the Femon Collective, heralded by Rhea, as well as Tony Farina, and then also Chris and Dave of Comics Emotion, and a variety of other contributors all contribute to this weekly newsletter so you get up to date with everything that we're all up to. So you don't have to follow every single person on social media and keep up to date with all those things. So, really recommend checking out the Pop Culture Collective newsletter. In addition to that, you can follow me on social media if you desire. At genuine chit chat on instagram twitter and on facebook 
You can subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash genuine chit chat, where you get video versions of the conversations, including this one. Things are all in genre playlists. There's also all my episodes of Star Wars Comics and Canon on there and the weekly discussion shows I do on the Star Wars shows that airs on the feed of Comics in Motion. So loads of different things there. Speaking of Star Wars and The Mandalorian, Mandalorian Series 3 has now finished, and so has the weekly discussion shows that I've been doing. So if you want to check out any of those, they're on the feed of Comics in Motion or on my YouTube channel. And the finale is with Chris and Dave, and I come in at the end just to give my final thoughts and just to thank a variety of people who've assisted and been on the show. So just thank you everyone who's been listening to those, and obviously thank you to anyone who is involved with them too. In addition to that, you can support the show by telling your friends about it, by sharing it on social media, but also by leaving reviews and ratings. So you can rate on Spotify, you can leave reviews on Apple Podcasts or on Good Pods or places like that. But if you want to go even a step beyond that, beyond sharing on social media, beyond reviews and all those things, which I really appreciate people doing, you can go to patreon.com slash genuine chitschat. For as little as £1 a month, you'll get access immediately to over 160 episodes of Afterthoughts. I think it's over 170 now, which the most of them are myself and Megan reviewing things. Some of them are live performances, some of them are TV shows or movies, and other ones are just when we've been on a trip together and we just decide to talk about it. So if you want to support the show and get instant access to hours and hours of additional content and also weekly episodes on there as well, please consider going to patreon.com slash genuine chitschat. Really helps out the show. It means that conversations like this one today can keep on happening and also you will get rewarded for your support. I really, really appreciate it. You will also get a portion of my undying love as well as all the bonus content too. But my friends, I think that is going to be enough from me. Make sure you check out last week's episode, which was originally only on Patreon, but I've released it to the masses, which is myself and Megan's engagement story. So yes, she's now my fiance, not just my girlfriend slash partner. So that's all very exciting. And uh, yeah, there's loads of other cool stuff on Patreon, but check out the back catalogue if you haven't already on Genuine Chit Chat. There's loads of great episodes that we have done. But just thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate it, especially listening all the way to the very end. I'll be with you next week for the next edition of Disney Discussions, and then we'll go from there with the other pieces of content I have got. So just thank you once again, and I'll speak to you next week. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of Genuine Chit Chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.